0: i with Jules Brenner, co-founder at Zeus Power. Welcome to the podcast, Jules. Appreciate
1: you having me, James.
0: Great. To start, could you tell us a little bit about Zeus Power?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Zeus Power creates energy solutions for the modern industrial real estate facility. We focus on first creating electric vehicle charging products for the trucks and the fleets that house their vehicles in those facilities. And really focusing on that next wave of energy where the predominant load of the building is the electric vehicle charging systems
0: and so you're saying those kind of industrial type buildings are we talking about like an Amazon warehouse are we talking about you know a supermarket that might have trucks kind of going in the back something else
1: yeah yeah it's definitely more of the Amazon warehouse think a, a, it could be a private fleet it could be a government fleet where they house like city vehicles street sweepers and Different vehicles and speculating poles, all the way to a, um, a kind of a smaller enterprise fleet that has you know, Chevy bolts for their employees. Um, anywhere where you'd have like a fleet and lots of uh, older vehicles as well.
0: That makes sense. And what drove the initial decision to start, Zeus?
1: Yeah, it was kind of interesting. I was in the industry. I was working at a company called Exos Trucks that was working on the, the sales side. And we looked a lot at installations and deployments of multiple chargers and trucks. And I started just looking at how complex it was to spec out charging systems for a lot of the buildings. You not only had to find excess power in one of the buildings, but you also had to then go and make sure that the building is really specced and ready for lots of chargers at scale and started to think that not only are most buildings going to tap out maybe at five chargers maximum. But the way that a lot of the trucking industry procures vehicles is very exponential versus, say, in like the public charging space. Um, they typically will sit on the sidelines with any new technology, whether it's hydrogen, biofuels, etc., for maybe an extended period of time. And then once they like something, they tend to ramp pretty quickly with some pretty big orders. So really wanted to be able to Think about when some of that stuff happens for the what currently is nascent electric truck industry. How are we going to be able to keep up? And from there, we started doing more research, looking into charging systems, and came up with the idea for Zeus.
0: And you said we there. I believe you have a co founder, and I would love to hear kind of how you two met.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my co-founder, Austin Hunt, we actually grew up like 10 minutes down the road from each other in Brooklyn, New York. We went to high school together, went to college together. In college, we created the school's first Baja racing team, basically building a team to put together a dune buggy for school competition from scratch, uh, raise money from the school, and built the team over the course of about six months. Well, the team still has to stay, but Austin and I really liked working with each other. and after you know college, we separated for a bit. He stayed in the Northeast. He worked at a few different companies, some startups all the way from doing kind of PowerPoint product to commercialization. He worked at some aerospace companies and had internships at SpaceX and a variety of other prominent aerospace firms. And, um, you know, he kind of is the more technical side of everything, even though we both have mechanical engineering degrees and his focus is very much on electromechanical solutions.
0: And so you had obviously this amazing kind of basis of a long term relationship with each other. But we all have people we grew up with, but we don't always necessarily want to start companies with them. In my own case, I even at one point started a company with my brother. I wouldn't say that was the most successful thing, but definitely the person I know best in the world. So these things have pros and cons. How, how were you kind of communicating with each other to say, okay, actually, we want to start something together?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I think Austin was um, getting to a point of his life where he wanted to get in really early into something. He was working at a company that was more like series B stage, but he was there through some of the early uh, fundraising rounds. And I think we just kept in touch. And when I started to, you know, sense his kind of desires to, to branch out almost on his own, uh, I was kind of thinking about, you know, a lot of the growth in the electric truck industry and was managed to, to kind of convince him over a course of a few months to come join on. So I think it worked out well. He certainly has a lot of skills that are complementary to mine. And I think we create a, a very well rounded
0: team. No, absolutely. I, I think like the, the the founder fit for this space is like super strong due to as, as a founding team. And I guess then, so you had this idea coming out of your experience at Exos Trucks. You have co-founder with technical abilities that you have this kind of long-term relationship building things together. And so I know you're kind of currently working on designing and and kind of going through some iteration on the MVP. Could you speak to what that process is like today?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So we
1: really wanted to focus first and foremost on a strong kind of customer fit before even getting too far along with the MVP. Um, You know, this is probably the fourth or fifth hardware startup that I've personally either either joined early or in this case co-founded. And we've seen this mistake over and over again. Austin certainly seen it in, in his engineering experience. So when we started doing that, we first figured out like who could be our initial first customers, and started taking a very um, kind of collaborative team approach with them. Like we have some government fleet managers that will very likely be their first early deployments, and we try to speak to them every few weeks as we do this, and literally show them everything we have and get inputs as we go through and think of it as we're custom making them a solution and setting KPIs for it as we go as well. So that's been really important and helpful in our, in our general goal. And, you know, putting together the MVP, we really wanted to focus on what's the, you know, literally the minimal viable product for, you know, this. So we we focused on a more toned down version of the commercialized solution in terms of both cost and functionality. Um, with the thought that the key features that kind of alleviate the largest pain points would be focused on first, and um, you know Austin's built a team on his side of various professionals in the charging sector, power electronics, mechanical design, etc., just to make sure that this is a robust product that is really geared towards the commercial mission-critical fleet applications.
0: And so those design partners that sounds like are kind of. Running or have ownership of governmental fleets. How did you find those and and get them to agree to chat for a few weeks?
1: Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so those those government customers, like, act. It was actually fairly easy. We really didn't spend too much time, frankly. Most of the relationships that I had from my time in industry were with private fleets, and we called the ones I knew pretty early on, and you know learned a lot. But government fleets have been very progressive with um, electrification and just clean energy on their yards. We pretty much went and found a, a list on some of the local agencies of the fleet managers, reached out and, and started conversations. A lot of the government mandates are really, really uh, soon versus private fleets. And they're ordering like, you know, we were literally on site with a, a government fleet yesterday and it's pretty bad. I mean, they were telling us how there's a, one of their uh, fleet yards is actually housed in an old, I think it was a horse barn and right. the, it's it, it's so old that you can see chew, tooth marks on some of the walls from the old horses but the infrastructure is very weak and I think that's why they're most receptive to
0: this kind of stuff. Yeah, whenever I kind of talk to people who are starting founding startups and they're like, oh, you know, I really struggle to find people to help give feedback on the product and it's like, if you can't find design partners to, to even talk to you now, like it might not be a painful enough a problem, and so I think it's like so it's it's great to hear that how easy it is because if you find people who are just like loving jumping on a phone call with you to talk about the scale of the problem, then there's definitely something to be solved here there's definitely a potential solution that that smart startup folks can kind of work on and so okay, so the so you have these Design partners you're talking to on a regular basis. Amazing, you're getting physically on site, seeing seeing horse barns and and other kind of issues. I guess from here, like, what's the kind of next milestones in terms of getting some sort of MVP to service those type of customers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we are currently in the pretty much supply chain kind of ordering phase of, of our MVP. So it's designed. We're focused on ordering. Parts as the parts come in we'll begin to assemble and then you know what at that point start to firm up the exact details of where we want this thing to go first and this kind of stuff should happen pretty quickly next maybe three to six months or so and to whatever extent possible we're also focused on really refining in a lot of the product's core like software features. So we have a, a soft, kind of very basic software layer that we'll initially have for the fleets and dialing that in. And then you know we take the data from that pilot over the course of the subsequent three to the six months and feed that back so that we can have a better pilot number two that has more of a you know kind of focus on the key features that we need to succeed. And then over time, as we build a, kind of these case studies, if you will, we can then start to take it to larger and larger customers, even like the landlords of some of the private fleets themselves that have been more proactive and want to install chargers maybe earlier than when the vehicles are on site.
0: And just so I, I kind of fully understand, like the use case. Let's say I'm like one of your target customers, and everything goes well. The, the kind of current direction, as you're kind of going through these pilots and the development of the technology, all goes well. For me, let's say I wanted to be onboarded uh, as your customer you know, six to eighteen months. What would that experience be like? And both through the onboarding and then once everything is set up, like how would I guess my life change in for the positive?
1: Yeah. So a, a few things. So I'll maybe talk to you about the experience we heard about yesterday with a, that government fleet manager. Now, um, uh, this gentleman, he is very you know aware of some of the challenges of just you know, installing more than even one charger in his facility. That's pretty much where he taps out. And for their experience, if didn't use a, a Zeus unit, they would literally have to redo their whole electrical room, as he was telling us yesterday, and, and modernize everything. And then also uh, pretty much tear up a bunch of concrete on their yard to, to get, you know, some solutions in that they might not eventually scale. They'll install five chargers, but then you know, once the building taps out and they need more later down the line they have to redo it. So it's kind of a messy experience, but Zeus, it's very much like just the typical installation of a charger. You know, we help you with permitting process to start the application. Once all of it's approved, we're working through the surveying where this thing is gonna sit, how it's gonna function. Once the unit arrives at the site, it's installed by a certified electrician. And then after that we help tune in the fleet management software to the vehicles that you have, which is just a, a simple onboarding process. And uh, I would definitely say that, you know, it's a, uh, it's, it's a much kind of cleaner installation because you're going to save on not only the cost, but most importantly the time and headache of all the other electrical system upgrades, which tend to take the whole charging installation process from being maybe six months to, you know, a year plus.
0: That, that makes sense. And the, and I guess, why, why do these things take so long, right? Is it, you mentioned permitting, is that like a large component that's kind of outside the control of both your customers and yourselves? Is it getting the components? Is it something else? Like what, what are the reasons for why this t- is such a kind of long process relative to, like for example, if, if you wanted to uh, build a, you know, an outbuilding as part of an industrial park, you can probably do that in a few months, right? Relative to this, which, which takes a, uh, quite a bit longer.
1: Yeah. So, so there's a few things to consider. So the first thing is that the amount of power that chargers in general are pulling is multiples more than what a building is rated for. You know, one statistic I can give you, about 50 Tesla supercharger type stations that would basically be for kind of semi-truck level draw as much power as a whole empire state building at peak load and it's it's quite a bit of ask for a old 1920s horse barn right so if you think about kind of what you need to do just from the electrical equipment perspective that's not only a big kind of logistical mess but it's also a huge capital capital planning allocation that a utility needs to take on uh, plus actually all applying and installing all the different components, transformer, substation upgrades, etc. Those things really add a lot of time. Permitting isn't too bad. I mean, it depends on the state. Some are more backlogged than others, but it's kind of, everyone really has to go through it. It just doesn't, it just gets elongated pretty substantially once other equipment gets in. Often the thing that happens is that you, you, tend to really run into what we used to see at Exos, which is that you would go down the kind of sales chain, you would get a happy fleet, everyone would be working towards the goal of an installation of a certain amount of units. And then once they start talking with their landlords about whether or not who pays for what, that turns into like a whole lengthy negotiation and further adds time. So it's it's a really big hassle versus if you just installed a unit that had what you need built into it and that thing was as movable as a charger unit will get and just needed to do permitting, not everything else.
0: That definitely makes sense. And so I guess then, you know, I know this is obviously very kind of early days, but one of the kind of challenges that some hardware startups have is, is this something that I'm selling the hardware and it's not upgraded very often? And I just have a single point of sale with a particular customer versus things where you have hardware kind of connected to other solutions, services, software, and so on. Or just something more like a kind of long-term relationship with the customer. It is a long-term revenue stream. How are you thinking in these early days about kind of the potential monetization of Zeus?
1: Yeah, good question. I think that's a, in general, it's a tough issue for a lot of hardware companies. Hardware tends to be a much lower margin you know, sale and then adding that into you needing a lot of sales time to get it done into more highly technical sale and usually lengthy sale, it doesn't tend to a very cash flow and positive business. And, you know, we've thought about that a lot. We really didn't want to end up in this situation where it was tough to scale. And then also, we didn't like what we saw in the industry about having this kind of you versus me type attitude towards a customer. You know, we've talked to a variety of different Fleets And in general, just I've talked to huge hotel chains that have installed will take thousands of charge points. And they would kind of complain that, you know, the more units that they put out, the higher their SaaS fees grow. But, the you know, their value isn't increasing. But anyway, it's just similar kind of costs tacking on and on for essentially charger and energy dashboards. So, you know, kind of thinking about that, we really wanted to be able to create a set of products Revenue streams that better align interests. So we have, you know, our typical revenue from the OEM charger sale. So the margins on there are pretty in line with what a typical OEM would sell their unit for—that 40 to 50% gross. And then from there, you know, once we are installed in the building, we use this kind of hardware aspect as essentially a uh, moat, right, to not have our software, you know, switched out like what might end up happening to some of the other charger OEMs. And, you know, we encourage the stickiness of the customer there. And then we work on the two software layers. So we have a software layer that's focused directly on our customer, which is in most cases the landlord, sometimes the fleets own their building. So they are technically the server that customer as well. But essentially, that software package just focuses on using the batteries that are in the Zeus unit as a literally an energy storage unit for the time that the vehicles are not charging. So if you think about a lot of fleets, vehicles are actually not using them throughout the day. That often is much more so that the battery is sitting around and you can use it all the different benefits that already exist in energy storage today, including peak shaving. To help you save on utility bills, um, resiliency to give you uh, peace of mind knowing that there is power on site at all times and some bit of capacity, especially when you go all electric, and then also create revenue streams to things like wholesales, where wholesale markets where you are essentially buy low, sell high with some of the energy, and you know we create our kind of higher gross margin revenue stream from that package, um, and really just try to focus on being more of like a partner. With our landlord where we, yes, we charge for that software, but we also make sure that that creates value to them so that it isn't just the, oh man, our kind of SaaS fees are growing and I don't know what extra I'm getting every time it happens kind of thing. And then towards the fleets themselves, it's just the standard fleet management software. Um, So they have all their data and, and with the software side, it's typically
0: higher gross margins as well. Yeah, on the kind of balancing the pricing incentive piece, I think is really key. We generally bulk discounts for a reason, right, at the enterprise level, unless you're getting some big value adds, right? And so maybe there's elements of compliance, maybe there, there are these other kind of buckets that people can add to an enterprise plan. But you definitely, if you're just kind of linearly going up in cost, you're eventually going to have pushback from enterprise where it's like, why am I getting charged? per unit, you know, 10,000 times, yeah, and I'm buying 10,000 units and a smaller company is basically getting a better deal for, because they have fewer units and, and, but our per unit price is the same. So I think definitely kind of taking into that concern into account is, is going to be quite powerful as you're kind of looking to kind of differentiate down the road. The other piece as you're chatting there. So I think I've mentioned the podcast before that one of the ideas that I explored in the past for a startup for myself was some sort of pure software solution that enabled, the better kind of monetization of distributed energy assets, specifically batteries, but others as well. You know, how could you kind of aggregate batteries that are already connected to grid and somehow in a way that kind of plays with wholesale energy markets? And I was talking to a few folks about this at the time. The thing we kept coming back to was, how can we make sure that we continue to have access to those physical assets? Because what would stop a... The owners of the batteries themselves are not the owners of batteries, but the manufacturers of the batteries themselves from having their own software layer sitting on top of those. And because they own the physical asset in the value chain, they seem to have the ability to block out other software that's trying to reach down into the physical asset. And so I guess, did you have a kind of similar kind of thought process around why owning the physical asset and the development of physical asset is so important? Yeah, that's, that's
1: that's a very good point. Yeah, I think owning the um, physical asset allows you to be better protected, you know, or, for, or, or rather from the OEM's lens, like from a Zeus lens, allows you to be better protected in a world where there are just a lot of different software platforms that help manage um, charging systems, potentially even battery systems. There's a variety of laws coming out with compliance with like OCPP for charging systems, so I really see that if you are just a pure like software play in trying to control hardware, you might have a really tough time growing. Um, I've been in that space before and I've just seen it. It's a, it's a pretty like tough equation sometimes to manage in terms of customer acquisition cost versus, you know, what people are willing to pay. And uh, to that point earlier about like the, the bulk pricing on enterprise. Um, The funny thing is the way that the incentives are aligned in the industry right now, like we've had so many customers that are just telling us, I wish I was paying zero. And, you know, they honestly mean it. Like they are to a point where they're just about to ask the charger OEMs to just shut off their software and let them use it as what they call a dumb charger. Um, So if something doesn't change there, I mean, I don't know that they'll get around it, but they are certainly feeling like they're being forced. So, um, you know, thinking about like how do we ourselves, like, bring in a battery on site that is essentially um, it's a smaller version of what you might get like from an energy storage application. It's something that we purchase direct. So we have full control over how that is used, but we are, you know, not being very like closed off about this kind of like very Apple-esque. We're instead trying to be open with the customer and saying, you know, now that you have this asset on site, let's work together to get the maximum monetization um, slash ROI on it. And ROI is a big word. It can mean just the insurance resiliency, which doesn't have an immediate cash number, but helps out if there is a problem. Uh, But I think that's really important. You have to look at this industry much more through the lens of property technology than you do automotive technology if you're going to stand out in 2022 and
0: frankly be profitable. And you mentioned the the kind of customer segments at the beginning that you're mostly targeted on our, is more of the public sector. And they seem to be the, those who are the greatest need are moving the fastest. And I guess like my intuition would be that that's generally not really the case. So if you're trying to sell to public entities, the sales cycles can be quite long. Often it can be hard to get to the right decision maker and so on. Whereas more typical corporate clients tend to move faster, but obviously if they're very big corporates, those can also move quite slowly. I guess, how, how are you thinking about that kind of sales cycle aspect and why is this industry or this particular segment so different compared to the typical public sector moves very slowly model?
1: Yeah, yeah, good, good questions.
0: So a few
1: things, you know, when we think about like, who is the ideal customer that buys today? I mean, the ideal customer is going to be someone that is either the landlord or the fleet of an industrial facility that is older and has less capacity. Right. And that could, you know, that could vary the older the building, the more likely they're going to tap out maybe even at that first charter. And if that's the case, as soon as they go to do some sort of utility study, could even be with a, another charger company, they're going to find out pretty quickly that they need to do something. And when they start pricing out what it costs to do, you know, all the station upgrades and the building upgrades, then they get turned off to the idea sometimes. So those, those um, parties tend to move a bit faster in general. But when it comes to government agencies, it's actually interesting because with fleets, they're not that hard to find. They're mostly, their the information's online and in a very minimal effort. Um, I used to sell to private fleets, and I'll just tell you, it's frankly been harder um, with private fleets than with uh, government fleets. Um, government fleets also um, they look at it a lot more through an ESG lens than a like fleet manager at a private fleet. Um, usually, the board of a company of a private fleet maybe has some ESG mandates, but by the time it hits the fleet manager's desk, they really don't care that much. So that's a big part of it. Government agencies also usually find themselves with a lot more cash towards this stuff. So while maybe the sales cycles can be slower, They actually have more spending power, and they actually have to spend it. So there's always some politician uh, that comes out with some new idea for how they can clean up the roads. And usually gets implemented in fairly short order. Um, But sometimes you're right, you know, it can take a little bit of time. The approach that we have always recommended to people is to say, think about your yard and not in the lens of you electrified three out of 50 vehicles. Think about it in more the lens of what would happen if you electrified um, whatever your goal is. Let's say 30 out of 50 and maybe the other ones are biodiesel or hydrogen or something or CNG. Um, what would the equipment needed look like? What would the cost of your utility bill be? Call your utility. Try to figure it out. And look at it from that lens and then ask them the other important question, which is what's the timing on all this? And we would talk to a lot of utilities, and you know they would tell us this I'm kind of jokingly. Where fleets would call them and say, "I need all this excess power in this location, and I need it in a few months." And um, a lot of them would they just kind of say, "No, we'll give you a few years." So when you know some of that stuff, you tend to move much faster. I and mean, I do think that a lot of the government agencies they're a bit closer to their utilities, and thereby it moves a little more smoothly. But a lot of them do have lots of vehicles on order. I mean, we were with one yesterday and, you know, they have like, I think they said 15 Ford uh, E-Lightnings and, you know, some street sweepers and all sorts of stuff coming in at the end of this year, um, going into the end of next year. COVID slowed that down a little bit in terms of supply chain, but um, those vehicles are coming. And with the permitting process, and when you start to think all that through, you're about right there in terms of when you want to start procuring these things.
0: And I guess then when I think about the this kind of property angle, right? And so mostly we've been kind talking about retrofits, the, the horse barns of the world and, and that kind of thing. But how do you think about like new builds? Would real estate developers generally be a potentially interesting segment to focus on in the future as they're thinking about new new build commercial and industrial to make sure that they have the right charging infrastructure from the beginning and before thinking about where... Heavy automotive industry is going.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the um, we definitely recommend with early builds that you you plan twice and you try to also future-proof to whatever extent possible. I can't tell you how many different companies I used to talk to that would basically take advantage of every single rebate and grant at a point in time. Especially those like really big franchise hotel chains and um, find themselves in the situation where they install chargers of different brands, some that are Wi Fi connected, some are not. And then at some point, they start to realize we should probably start to really uh, standardize the asset and figure out one central place to track them. And find themselves then in a position where it gets kind of messy. So I think it's really important to. Think about a standardized process for your facilities somewhat early. I understand that most would probably not go with one technology in total, but definitely keep the batch to a very small, limited amount. And you know, to whatever extent you do have the ability to install early from fresh concrete, um, you're gonna keep your total cost down. But more importantly, you'll be able to plan for things like footprint stick chargers in the front of parking spots and have vehicles have to park three feet from the curb you also want to be thinking about um, to whatever extent possible how you can use the battery systems to better manage the building it's it's kind of interesting like if you think about the way a lot of like the let's say office park chargers are installed they'll be closer to the building and they'll also be thinner profile chargers Just because closer to the building means less electrical costs, thinner profile because you don't want to cover up the whole building to the point where you can't see the chargers. If you start thinking about batteries as part of that, if you don't plan electrical lines early, you don't want to find yourself in a position where batteries start to take up a big part of your front facade as well too. So early planning is really really
0: important and it's also cheaper. And then, thinking uh, kind of on a broader spectrum, the changes at the policy level, and so we had the federal infrastructure bill get passed last year. There were multiple billions of dollars set aside for EV infrastructure development. Still, I guess, a little bit unclear to me about the exact kind of deployment structure of that money. But how do you think about either the existing incentives like what was passed last year or things that could potentially kind of emerge in the future, about how that affects how you're approaching the deployment of your early product?
1: Yeah, good question. I think you know, it's it's very exciting to see that amount of dollars flow in from the federal level. I think you know most even cities now are are adopting their own programs and spending their own money, but the federal level should create a lot of opportunities for us to you know not only find just on the government website opportunities for bid, um, but most importantly, I think what it's doing is it's bringing into the light um, a lot of grid issues. In this country's electrical infrastructure, Um, and as you start to think more about that, you start to really start to weigh whether you want equipment upgrades that maybe give you more capacity, but still force the utility to work hard to produce lots of energy, or whether you want battery systems as part of the equation that should make it easier for the utilities to generate energy and store them in the batteries prior to use. But I do think that the you know overall the federal bill has been a strong sign for acceleration in the industry and it's certainly kind of woken up a lot of the fleets to um, the opportunity of taking advantage of incentives now a lot of them they maybe were thinking of going electric but they were going to stall closer until the date mandates and now with the money coming out over a limited time here they have accelerated a
0: lot of their plans and then thinking about the team and, and the kind of, as you were kind of building out the team and the company culture over the next few years, one of the things I found in myself is every kind of new venture or thing, you know, company that I start, the culture is often a, either a reflection in some way of kind of my, my past experiences at other organizations or other companies that I've been involved in. So either I'm embracing certain aspects of those other companies and trying to, you know, incorporate those in what I'm working on now or I'm kind of reacting against them and saying, okay, you know, <laughs> that 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 company was great, but they had this particular part of their culture or part of what it was to work there that I just absolutely do not want to have at my new company. For yourself, having, you know, worked at a few companies, worked at companies that have also been part of the kind of EV and electrification space, what are the kind of elements that you're like, okay, these are the things that I really want to bring in and, and instill as the culture of, you know, of Zeus versus other areas where it's like, oh, I absolutely do not want to bring those into this new company.
1: Yeah, that's a um, good good question. Well, I think a, a few things.
0: Some of my past
1: roles in companies, I think we've worked on some products that were kind of similar, like some prop tech, some electromechanical hardware. And I think with those, you typically, you know, you'll need your engineering teams, of course. But most importantly, a lot of those companies they had strong like mission-driven values, and I think with trucking, it's you know in general fleets and all that they they are a small portion of the total transportation pie, but they are a disproportionate part of the actual emission side. So I think having a culture of people focused on alignment on decarbonization is something that's important to us. But also a culture focused on strong engineering and active conversations with customers early is, is key as well too. Um, I've been in companies where we've cut corners in early stage engineering and design, and I think that has certainly come to haunt us later. And I think in, when you're making a, you know, a mission critical product like a charging system or energy system for a charge it for a, a vehicle application. You want to do it right. You don't want a call from a fleet someday telling you that they can't operate that day because the chargers are out or something like that, which is unfortunately becoming an all too common issue in the um, public charging sector these days. So I think those are really important. I think really also focusing on very kind of systematic approach to the growth is, is vital too. We don't want to make a product just for the sake of it. So we really focused on identifying customers who have pain points today, instead of just running out and looking at the broader market of who will certainly feel this pain in a year or two. Um, and we want to make sure, you know, that ultimately ends up being a kind of the right recipe of culture at Zeus.
0: I love that. And I think it's great that you're already kind of being so kind of thoughtful about those elements uh, as you kind of build out the company. Jules, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Thank you, Jules. It's been great. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Appreciate you having me, James.
0: Take care now. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. I cannot express how appreciated it is. And we'll be back next week with another episode.